Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the show that analyses the political news and when reviewing the results often finds you'd get the same conclusion by kicking yourself in the face while being attacked by bees. This is episode 139, I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week, as Labour MP and series of frowning circles, David Lammy causes outrage by saying the Conservative Brexiteer group, the ERG, are like the Nazis, I too say, hey, that's not a fair comparison. I mean, actually, the Nazis were very well organised. No Brexit till Halloween! Unless, of course, Parliament can agree to a deal before then. So, no Brexit till Halloween! And it's a perfect date for it, as people will long to seek out a variety of monsters or crazed killers in order to release them from this seemingly never-ended self-inflicted diadem. Perhaps the October celebration will go back to its traditional meaning of remembering the dead, just not people, but political parties, UK democracy and, of course, hope. It's both a blessing and a curse that the EU granted Prime Minister and rotting cauliflower Theresa May an extension to Article 50, as yes, it was what was needed, with no other plan being available, but also, oh God, we've got six more months of this awful, yet also tedious, tedious shit. Once again, the Conservatives seem to have added an extension to something using taxpayers' money. Chances are, if no arrangement is made by October, Brexit will then sport a floating duck island and a moat too. No Deal looks like it's no longer an option, so it's great that the £4 billion has already been spent on No Deal preparations, such as hiring a ferry firm without any ferries. Poor photocopy of a Picasso painting and Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, defended that spending by saying it would have been irresponsible not to. Whereas, you know, vowing to avoid a No Deal from the beginning and using that money for almost anything else ever would, of course, be completely batshit. Eh, Phil? Hmm, I'm sure. Nothing more responsible, of course, than willingly pushing ahead with a destructive possibility and spending billions of cash on it for over two years because your boss has such severe red lines that doctors are concerned it's Rose Lucia. Of course, the Brexiteers are livid as delaying Brexit even further risks abandoning due to boredom. Could it be pushed back and back and back until those still alive barely remember what it even means? A whisper on the wind or an old wives' tale, Brexit petering out like an 80s power ballad on its last play. Well, not if stupid Penfold and Conservative MP Mark Francois can stop it, which he can't because he's too thick. 
But part of his trying involved him telling an audience of nearly dead people at a pro-Brexit conference that Brexit has gone on long enough and the EU Council will be facing perfidious Albion on speed, which, apart from sounding like a horse that would die within seconds of the Grand National, also actually suggests that the UK would be even less trustworthy even more quickly. Which I have a feeling Marc Francois doesn't understand that's what perfidious Albion means, or he'd have noticed that we're already at peak dishonesty with all the illegal electoral activity around, you guessed it, the Leave campaign. I'm sure the EU will find it as concerning as Marc Francois threatening to be more stupid. The result of using a strong vacuum to pull an arse inside out, Nigel Farage, has launched his Brexit party, although sadly not into the sun. The party who are going up against UKIP, who are also a Brexit party, and the Conservatives, the official sort of pro-Brexit party, and Labour, of course, who are pro-Brexit sometimes, depending on the day's specials, are, according to professional gobshite Farage, there to cause a democratic revolution in politics. Which makes it sound a lot like he just wants everything to keep going round in circles as it is, as that will keep him in a job without having to do anything, much like his entire career. The Brexit Party's big announcement was that Guinness in a test tube, Jacob Rees-Mogg, his sister Anna Ziata Rees-Mogg, would be running for them in the European elections. Yes, Anna Ziata Rees-Mogg sounds like a weird condition that causes you to send your kids to a boarding school the second they've been born, or perhaps a yoga position that involves having your head up your ass while your parents throw money at you. But actually, she's a woman who looks like she enjoyed checking out a crime scene a bit too much in a Danish crime thriller, where it turns out in the end that she did it. Anna Ziata claimed to speak on behalf of normal people, but that's probably because she had them banned from the grounds, so they were unable to get there themselves. MPs are now on Easter recess, which bodes well for Brexit as the notion is all but dead now, but by Easter Sunday could well have risen again with a fresh outlook. When MPs return to Parliament, the UK will be a week away from local elections, followed possibly by European elections, both of which it's predicted will favour badly for Labour and the Conservatives, with votes looking likely to go to the bonkers or boring fringe parties instead. Change UK, the party of people who own a trouser pressed and fill up their petrol tank to the top every time just in case, they've boasted that they may have some well-known names running in the EU elections, with hints it may include a former cabinet minister. But based on the amount of resignations May has had over the last few years, that could be almost anybody in the country. Labour are now ahead on Westminster voting intention polls and were a general election to happen, which it might, especially as May is currently on a walking holiday, then the Conservatives are currently on target to lose 60 MPs, with walking dinghy Boris Johnson likely to lose his seat. Good, I hope he has to ride his bike without one for at least a year. But uh uh-oh, what's this? Labour leader and toe poking through an old sock, Jeremy Corbyn, privately told morally loose woman Dame Margaret Hodge that he was concerned that evidence of anti-Semitism had been mislaid or ignored by his party, as she released a secretly recorded conversation. So, wait, let me get this right. Corbyn said he was concerned about anti-Semitism and explained why he really wanted Lord Falconer to investigate cases of it. Hodge illegally recorded it, and, I mean, oh man, that's really going to damage Corbyn's repu... No, wait, no, no, I still don't get it. Why is that... Even a story. I'm looking forward to the Easter holidays bringing up other damaging stories about Corbyn, such as that time he admitted he left the fridge door open and when he forgot to let his cat back in after going out for the evening. Hmm, exciting. On Thursday, after being there for seven years, Ecuador withdrew asylum from WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, and he was dragged out by police looking a lot like a Santa for crackheads. Now, this is a murky old case, as Assange very much deserves to be put on trial for allegations of sexual assault in Sweden that were dropped, but may now be reopened. But in the UK, he was actually charged with failing to surrender, something that I wish we could get Theresa May on. He may now also be extradited to the US for participating in the hacking of intelligence computers after he aided Chelsea Manning in revealing important footage of the US killing civilians in Iraq, something that every everyone already knew about as that's pretty much America's brand but hey sometimes it's nice to be proved right. So Assange did do one good thing but most of the other stuff he's done is pretty awful. It's like Darth Vader where sure he threw the Emperor down a shaft in Return of the Jedi but that doesn't remove from him blowing up an entire planet and murdering an old man. 
Also similar to Vader, Assange was apparently having a lot of breathing difficulties, though after seven years in a room with only the internet to keep him company, it's very likely that's just a wanking injury. Apparently the last straw for the Ecuadorian authorities, which led to Assange's asylum being withdrawn, was when WikiLeaks published information stating evidence of corruption in Ecuador's government. Which, I mean, you really shouldn't crap on your own doorstep. Or, in Assange's case, inside the house, as if he'd gone to the doorstep of the embassy, he'd have been arrested sooner. Actually, his internet was cut off in March, and the Ecuadorian embassy have said that Assange did smear his shit on the walls, but I guess without online access, where else could he have put it? So, should he be extradited to the US? Probably not. To Sweden? Yes. How about just popped outside in the sunlight, though, so his copydex-looking body and myxomatosis eyes can react like a vampiric mole man and we can all laugh at him online? Definitely. I mean, how much effect will it have putting a man who's lived in a room for seven years into prison anyway? It'll pretty much be a busman's holiday for him, with the added bonus, of course, that he may now have to sell share with someone who'll finally teach him how consent works. In Israeli elections, right-wing party Likud again won most seats with 35, and inspiration for those weird toy rubber faces you move with your thumbs, Benjamin Netanyahu, is still leader, much to the disappointment of anyone who likes democracy. But the centrist Blue and White Alliance also won 35 seats, while the Labour Party have disappeared, showing that the country is still very much divided, which feels incredibly apt for Israel. But a PR firm who placed 1,200 hidden cameras in largely Arab polling stations took to Facebook to boast how they'd lowered the turnout, which was historically low at just 50%. Filming in polling booths is, of course, prohibited, but when is any area being off-limits, stop Netanyahu and his party from setting up there. In Finnish elections, the Social Democratic Party won by only 17.7% of the vote, but the far-right Finns party were behind by only 0.2%, and the formerly in-charge Centre Party crashed down to 13.8%. The problem is this makes forming a coalition tricky, so fingers crossed the two biggest parties don't try to work together on some sort of national socialism platform, or Finland could be in trouble. And lastly, scientists unveiled the first ever picture of a black hole. Turns out it resides in the Government Department of International Trade, just next to disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox. And Salisbury was named best place to live in the UK, because yes, that's where we are as a country. Brexit has made the UK so unlikable and boring that you're better off living somewhere you might be poisoned to death than anywhere else, as at least then you won't have to put up with this shit anymore. Yes, 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 it's a full episode again. Welcome back, Poddingtons, and I hope you survived last week's absolute vacuum of joyful news without a proper Parpole Bro episode. But that tiny episode I made was recorded while sitting between boxes and balancing the laptop and microphone on the as-yet-unmade bed while sort of leaning awkwardly forward to be the right height. Weirdly, it didn't sound any different to normal, did it? Which um, means my default sounding is sort of slightly pained and unsettled, so that's nice. Uh, moving places really tons harder when you have a one-year-old. I mean, even a trip to Ikea to get a few bits became an entire afternoon because we popped into the cafe to get her some lunch and my daughter spent an entire hour eating each of her peas individually. I had no idea that parenting was such a set of swings and roundabouts where one minute you're delighted that they're eating their vegetables and the next you're praying she never eats peas again because it turns out you also have a life to get on with. Normally my frustrations with Ikea are limited to other people being dawdling fuckwits or pointless arguments with my wife about which set of drawers is likely to break first. Anyway, we're now nearly completely settled in so uh, the podcast is back just in time for a two-week recess from Parliament, during which I really should have had a break. There's no winning ever. Um, and Notre Dame is currently on fire as I'm recording this, which is a very weird thing. Um, I've been there, and it's lovely, uh, and it's very old, so it's sort of sad that it's burning. It's also a building, so I just hope people are safe. And I'm slightly concerned that with the Gillette Jean protest, if they have to build some sort of safety barricade around it, how are you going to work out who's a fire guard and who's the public? Oh, very strange. Anyway, um, thank you all uh, for still being here, and hello to all the new subscribers and listeners that have joined over the past few weeks, just in time for me to do a not-proper episode. Great timing there, well done. Um, big shout-out to the three of you whose pod 
apps obviously do that really annoying thing where it downloads all possible episodes once you've subscribed because, oh yes, episodes 1 to 136 all had three listens in one day, which is, I'm sure it's you frustratingly hitting the mark all as listened and shouting swears at your phone, and for that, you have all the feels. Um, thank you very much to Sam for the lovely review on iTunes. Uh, whichever of you also gave a five-star to it too, and whoever the person is who hit two-star, I'm sorry that this podcast was forced upon you and uh, it wasn't the parboiled Pol Pot Brothers podcast you were expecting. If you have something nice to say or you just want to hit the five stars, please do so on your pod apps of enjoyment, but also especially on iTunes as we're now just four away from the big 150. And if you want to give this show a two-star review, then why not whisper it into a knot of an old tree and then stuff that knot with dead bees that you've picked up with your bare hands and never, ever mention it to anyone ever again. Thanks. Uh, cheers also to Ruby for the Kofi donation. If you can spare a coffee's worth of Dosh this way, then it is super helpful in keeping me caffeinated enough to make this show. Uh, you can do that at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro too. Um, but most importantly, of course, please just tell other people IRL uh, or not IRL. Is there a term for when it's not IRL? Is that just online? Is it, is it NIRL? N-I-R-L? Not really on, not in real life? If social media isn't real life, then does that mean I don't actually have any friends? God, this is tough, isn't it, this life? Um, only bit of admin this week is that the family politics show I do with Tat and Spiller from Simple Politics called How Does This Politics Thing Work Then is at the Lincoln Drill Hall on April the 27th at 2pm and you can grab tickets for that at lincolndrillhall.com um, and please do, as it's a pretty big venue. I had no idea that drills needed quite so much space. Mine just fits in a small plastic box. Um, anyway, that's for uh, Children Age 6 Plus. Doesn't have any of the swears like this uh, podcast does, but please do come along. There's lots of jokes in it and pictures of cats. Standard. Um... On this week's show, I'm talking to Claire Farrell from Environmental Activist Extinction Rebellion, who by the time you hear this will have embarked on their international rebellion with loads of actions planned all over the place to highlight that we are mere years away from a horrible heat death, flood, horror, famine. Um, Again, while I'm recording this, they've sort of taken over a lot of the West End and Waterloo Bridge and Piccadilly Circus and Oxford Circus and and, and sort of made it quite dead around there. It's brilliant. Uh, It's a brilliant protest. It also sort of gives you an interesting insight into what the world might be like post-climate change uh, when there's just absolutely you know what around apart from some sort of weird post-apocalyptic zombies and two people fighting each other to the death for a tin of beans um anyway uh there's not much brexit this week so you know i just had to get some sort of misery in for balance didn't i climate change was the one you're welcome um plus there's a look at whether julian assange is a baddie or just a misunderstood rejected broken replicant spoilers he's a baddie but before all of that there's also a very very tiny bit of this brexit So that's it, everyone. No Brexit till October. You can breathe easy, depending on the air pollution levels in the part of the country you're in, or, you know, if you have asthma. I'm just being inclusive. I'm just trying. Obviously, if you wanted a Brexit, you might be a bit miffed that it didn't happen on any of the overly optimistic and rushed dates that it was promised to happen, but now you have even more time to do whatever it is you need to do to get ready for your much look forward to Brexit, like, um, sort of stock your bunker or learn how to skin squirrels. I mean, you know, that is if Brexit happens. There's some concern that with it constantly being pushed back, that Brexit might just never happen, with the public getting so bored of it all, they just sort of withers away like a childhood dream rendered pointless by the sheer inescapability of how unexciting the drudgery of adulthood is. Or there might be a general election which could change its course as the public votes for no one in particular and we end up with a weird coalition made up of your local postal worker, one of the cast members of Coronation Street and a sock puppet. Still, no one really knows but there is likely now six more months of Brexit. I mean, of course it might be less than six months if Parliament can agree on a withdrawal agreement before then but considering May is planning to wheel out her deal yet again 
again, all stitched and plasters up like a victim of a bullfight, and it will no doubt get knocked back again before having robotic insertions to make it like the billion-dollar deal so make and bring it back yet again, but this time with a laser eye. And Foreign Secretary and String of Piss Jeremy Hunt has said that it's a priority to avoid the European elections, which means they'd have to find a deal by May the 22nd. And after Easter break and with May bank holidays, that leaves only 21 working days for politicians to do what they couldn't do in over two years. Then, of course, a heavy pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit stance in the local elections and European elections may influence what the government does next, although it probably won't, because compared to Theresa May, I've seen more heavily bled stones. So if it does get to October, which it will, I'm not good at political predictions, but I mean, come on, it's definitely going to, then August will be spent with MPs slagging each other off out of boredom, and then come September they'll realise they have to actually do something again, and then Brexit debates will likely start at 5pm on October 30th before the 31st, when May has to go to Brussels and say pleasey please in at least 12 different languages just to get another extension. And while pushing things back until someone has any sort of idea is a good thing, it's also a bad thing for many companies and businesses to keep having to rework their leaving strategy, costing them millions. People studying and working in Europe are having to hold off their applications, and of course, £4 billion has already been spent on no deal, which isn't going to happen, and the country as a whole has spent £66 billion on Brexit already. It seems Boris Johnson's Garden Bridge spend was merely a warm-up for him in wasting money. So then if Brexit didn't happen at all, and many big leavers are now announcing that actually they can't be asked anymore, then that's a whole lot of money that's gone towards an absolutely pointless thing that then didn't happen. They may as well have just hired the KLF to burn it, and at least then someone would have gained warmth from it, and then we'd all have had an extra opportunity to call the KLF idiots, which would have cheered the country up a bit and no doubt united us. One other thing to note this week is that the launch of Farage's new clown car, sorry, vehicle, the Brexit Party, he announced that they'd already raised £750,000 in donations, all in small sums of £500. I mean, that's pretty impressive considering during the general election, Labour, backed by momentum, raised what was considered a large sum, which was just 62500 So for an entirely new party to get more than that is quite odd, especially when their website wasn't up until April the 5th. Sums of £500 or less don't come under the Electoral Commission's political parties, elections and referendums act, which means that donors don't have to be on the electoral register or registered in the UK. The Brexit party gets all its donations through PayPal, so its donors aren't listed, but one Twitter user, at Turlock C, traced the server donating the amounts to Michigan in the US, which could point to several hard-right affiliates of Farage. Either way, Farage made a big point the Brexit party not being funded by the likes of human orthopaedic shoe Aaron Banks, and all by grassroots donations, but it seems much like the pro-Brexit face Facebook adverts, these grassroots are actually just the greening hairs of another swampy hard-right billionaire funding Farage's lobby. Still, on the plus side, if Farage fails to get elected to anything ever again, then at least those billionaires are wasting their not hard-earned money, and their children will have to grow up understanding that they're only really rich and not really, really rich because their stupid dad gave money to a racist arse trumpet. Good. If you're a long-time listener, you're probably thinking, Tiernan, you've interviewed people about climate change loads. Why hasn't it stopped yet? And to that, I'd have to reply that I just don't know. I mean, I thought this podcast, with its minimal listenership and occasional jingles, would single-handedly have reduced all carbon emissions by now, and we'd all be laughing about it while smoking an aerosol with a crab who's sitting comfortably on top of an old wheelie bin lid in the sea. But no. Sadly, environmental damage is still increasing at an absolutely terrifying rate. The Great Barrier Reef has now declined by 89% due to rising sea temperatures, and scientists reckon it will take 10 million years for the Earth to recover from our current extinction-level event, by which point the UK may also have sorted out Brexit. 
Current models show global warming will rise by 1.5 degrees Celsius between 2030 and 2052, which is pretty bad. But if you already consider that the rise in temperature have led to the largest refugee crisis in history, which has gone on to change global politics, and that's not mentioning all the natural disasters that have completely wrecked places like Mozambique, then that small change is going to have a lot of consequences. So I'm not sure if you have the same, but I struggle with feeling a bit helpless about it, when the best I can do is recycle a bit of cardboard or turn the tap off when brushing my teeth. But there are 3,000 coal factories churning out crap every day, and I don't know how to stop that or close them down. The closest I've done is I once evacuated a lift, and if anything, that involved me releasing gases, so it probably wasn't that much help. Really, for things to change and change fast, governments and companies, those creating the most pollution, need to act now. And I don't just mean in a method way as villains, like they have been doing for years. Q Extinction Rebellion, a socio-political movement that aims to achieve radical change to stop human extinction and ecological collapse, all through non-violent action. You may remember a few weeks ago when a group of naked people attached themselves to the glass in the public gallery at Westminster. That was them. Uh, or all the very powerful climate strikes where school children protested by not going to school. Because seriously, what's the point in school when everything you learn will come second to having to work out how to breathe in a planet that's on fire? After starting in London last October, Extinction Rebellion now have groups all over the UK and world, and this week they've been embarking on an international rebellion, which has so far involved, amongst other things, blocking Waterloo Bridge and turning it into a proper garden bridge, which is better and no doubt cheaper than anything Boris could come up with. Uh, they also blocked off Oxford Circus, Parliament Square, Marble Arch, Piccadilly Circus, and various other locations around the world, and they'll be there all week. So, for this week's show, I spoke to Claire Farrell, co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, to find out what they're up to, what on earth we can do, how to make a fun protest about something so constantly terrifying, and if me evacuating a lift helped at all. OK, I didn't ask her the last one, but I did the others. I hope you find this interesting, and do go join them this week if you can. Here's Claire. The uh, Extinction Rebellion protest uh, the other week with the uh, naked protesters in the Commons uh, just before the indicative votes bill. That was amazing. Very funny. It looks slightly painful on the buttocks. But, I mean, how do you do sort of fun protests about climate change? Because isn't it just all so goddamn depressing and bleak? (laughs) Um, It's pretty bleak, yeah. Um, And I think we've definitely taken an approach to a kind of... um, you know, radical honesty on on the bleak front, which has um, I think set us apart from from other from other groups and movements and and, and other messages that people have put out there. It's sort of um, it's deeply honest about how how bleak the situation is. Really, um, Extinction Rebellion, but um, but yeah, there's a there's a space for um, for humour, isn't there? And there's and and especially in the, especially when you're sort of looking at the political context in this country right now. Um, you know, it, it's difficult not to see not to see an opportunity for for some things to be uh, funny, I guess. <laughs> um, is is it the sort of uh, do you think it's a sort of laugh? Uh, otherwise, you'll cry kind of attitude. Is that? <laughs> I mean, that's how I, I sort of see most laughing about most of politics at the moment. It's just well, if I don't laugh about it, I'm going to have to go scream in the park, and uh, that's the only way to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe there is a, a, a little bit of a sentiment of that. I mean, I think. I think we've um I think we've achieved several different things on on various protests you know some of them have been very solemn and 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 quite sad and and grief laden and and some things have been sort of extremely joy filled as well and um you know that's that's only fair really I I think in in the if you're if you're looking at something which has to um speak about like life itself right that's kind of that's kind of where we're coming from is is it's this very this very big concept of like all of life, um, and if you want to 
if you want to work with all of that then then some of it is is very joyful and some of it is is very very sad so i think it's it's cool that there's a there's a spectrum going on if you know what i mean yeah, absolutely. And I think one one of the things I absolutely uh, hugely admire about Extinction Rebellion is, is as you said, that you uh, aren't afraid to kind of point out how serious it is, which is something that I feel is has been missing from everything uh, for years. You know, I mean, it's the, it's the sake of the planet, the place that we live on, and yet nobody, <laughs> or you know, barely anyone's been standing up going, hey, everyone, you should probably pay attention to this or we'll have absolutely nowhere for our species to be. Um, it's, it's sort of baffling to me. But the... I mean, how did Extinction Rebellion come about? Because uh, I remember sort of when you launched, w- one of the, the, the big things that you were saying was, you know, nobody is dealing with this properly. Um, and obviously there are other environmental groups and campaigns out there. What what kind of made you think not enough is happening? I mean, apart from the fact that nothing, is, not enough is happening, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if you look at the data, yeah, absolutely nothing meaningful is happening. Um and that's and that's a, so always a battle with. I, I've said this to a lot of people. I've said it to some people who work in the in the sort of NGO sector as as well as um, lots of other people. But it's it's like it's cool to say, okay, well, the UK um, massages its figures and it's and it's um, and it's scaled back coal and it's done blah blah blah. And it's okay to say, well, this country is like you know turning over to renewables and that's very good. But if you look at the global picture. Um, you know, we're, we're just really fucked. And that's like, and, and that's a fact. And the, the the facts don't change just because one good thing happens or just because people ban plastic straws quite quickly or just, you know, so so if you, if you get all the data together and there's a few other people who were doing similar work uh, at the same time as, as our sort of core researchers um, were putting, were putting together the sort of initial talk um, which is probably well, I could tell you about a, a little bit about that. So the the start of Extinction Rebellion it was born out of this group of um, activists, uh, decentralised network of activists called Rising Up, which had been conceived uh, with the purpose of trying to achieve, um, you know, large scale um, social change. Um, <clears throat> and then, and then the idea was was put forward that this this network of people would would potentially do something all together rather than lots of small campaigns, which was what was going on when, when I met them. Um, and they were sort of iterative things, testing out uh, civil disobedience tactics. And when, when, we, when everyone decided to start a rebellion um, and all push in one direction, um, there was a talk, and it's, we call it the talk. And, um, and that, is, that, is the, that is bleak. Um, and uh, it's called Heading for Extinction and What to Do About It. And the talk brought together lots and lots of information about, about climate, which, which we don't often see sort of all in one place, if you like. <clears throat> um, so if you um, look at a couple of factors, because we've made it so bad, if you only look at a few factors, um, you can see that we're, we're really in, in serious um, shit now. And that um, includes you know, looking at some feedback mechanisms that are embedded in the system that don't necessarily get recognised very well um, by the scientific literature because they can't map them, because they don't have any sort of... They don't have a very reliable uh, way of, of looking at data that might might show them how those things function or what might play out. So often, oftentimes they're not included in, um, in projections by... Um, by people like the IPCC. So um, 
if you know that these mechanisms exist and you know that they're not factored into people's projected warming um, estimates, then then you can say, well, okay, we don't know what the outcome will be, but we know it will be worse than this. And then if you look at uh, that, you know, some a very simple example is like the albedo effect, when we lose that effect of my ice reflecting lots and lots of energy back into space because the ice melts and disappears and we get dark water surface on the planet instead, that will absorb heat. That's very basic physics. So as you lose ice, the warming gets faster and faster. Um, that's that's positive feedback loop. So um, we sort of had uh, people put several of these sort of um, factors together. Um, there's a lag on carbon. So the planet will carry on heating up for at least 30 years, even if we switched off our emissions now, because lots of the carbon we've already emitted hasn't created the warming effect that it is going to wow. yet. Um, so if you put if you put a few of these quite sort of fairly simple bits of information together. I mean, the, the whole system is extremely complicated and it's and it's not to oversimplify it, but you only need some a few of those bits of information to understand that we're in a position where it's where it's possible that things could things could run away from us, if you know what I mean. So um so it seemed to me quite sort of timely um that that other people were doing that work as well as well as us as an academic called Jen Bendel. He he wrote a paper called Deep Adaptation last year, which has been downloaded I think like well over a hundred thousand times I heard, and like the average download for an academic paper is apparently about three times. Um, so that's also, you know, that's also that's sort of rocked the uh, rocked the academic world quite hard. And now there's like um, there's like support groups and all kinds of things because because his perspective is that you know collapse is inevitable and catastrophe is likely and extinction is possible. So he puts things in, in that order. He's definitely at the more concerned end of the spectrum, and there are other people with, um, you know, who are less alarmed. Um, but, yeah, it's it's sort of born out of looking at some of this data and saying, okay, you know, let's let's get real about this and recognise the, recognize the level of risk, really, and the position that we're in and try to... Try to instill a sense of urgency in people to to realize that it's uh, that it's now or never and of course the the un and i mean there are many there are many many credible voices who are saying exactly the same thing so it's not it's not just us it's, it's fascinating one of the things that you say there that i, I kind of um I, I find amazing that more people haven't done is is the kind of joined up thinking about how many you know, for example, the I'm putting this quite badly, but for example, the plastic in the ocean, that's been a big, uh, you know, the government has said, oh, we'll have a plastic free aisle in the supermarket, which will do nothing, you know, and all these things. But but no one's pointing out that the ocean generates so much of the oxygen that we need. So it's not just the fish life and everything, but it's also the oxygen we need. And then, you know, there's it's very rarely seems to have been pointed out that much of the refugee crisis has been caused by climate change, which then led to further political crisis. And, you know, it, it feels like there's a there's not much joined up thinking about the effects of climate change. Uh, and as you said, we're just hearing uh, a lot of the times it's just kind of individual cases of it or individual things that may happen rather than the overall picture. And do you think that uh, that stops people from being able to kind of look at it and see how terrifying it all is at once? Yeah, well, I think there's been a big question. Uh, there's been a big question about like how to talk to people about big interconnected stuff, hasn't there? Like, Certain people that I know understand very well how to sort of talk about, um, you know, the impact of a political and economic system, um, the refugee crisis, 
austerity. You know, you can look at all these things as a sort of big pattern, but but not everybody does that. And I think often often we sort of we sort of accept a narrative that tells us that like ordinary quote unquote people can't handle thinking about you know a big network of things. They need to be given some like you know spoon fed sort of tiny um, dumbed down information through through our media. Um, and that's something that's something that I think is just basically personally I think it's not true. Um, I do think people have been affected by having such a sort of um, idiotic sort of um, a- approach to the news uh, for at least the whole time I've been <laughs> I've been alive. Um, but um, but yeah, it's, it's it's about sort of seeing a big system and the and the rising up network that that was that preceded Extinction Rebellion and, and still exists actually as a, as a thing, which I, which I think many members would associate themselves uh, with that, um, with that still and, and, and with the work that they did and, and with work that they're ongoing. Um, you know, part of their, part of their ethos when they set up was um, recognizing a toxic system and recognizing like, yourself as a part of it and recognizing that you know whilst we try to change everything we're going to have to go through this big change ourselves and stuff so it's kind of um it's kind of taken a whole a whole a whole body and mind approach in some ways i think as well for as well for some people which also which also just seems sort of more um more real it seems more sort of human in, in a way um than taking one than taking one issue and saying can we can we get a small win on this and isolate it and 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 then and then we'll feel better you know um yeah yeah definitely i think it's it's, uh, i mean i think it's one one of the problems i have as well is that that sort of thing of you know i know i can recycle and i know you know i can you know do various things in my own lifestyle but i'm also aware there's sort of three thousand coal factories churning out crap and it just makes you feel quite useless and i think there's that um you know, being able to look at it as the whole picture and, and tackle it sort of feels a lot more powerful uh, from from the point of what we can do as as, as people. I, mean, I was going to ask, you know, the climate strikes um, with all the school kids. I thought those were particularly uh, really powerful. And they, you know, um, I think they got a lot of people to pay attention. I mean, is it do you think it's you know, it, it must be more effective when you have kind of children protesting because that's actively everyone's future going, hey, we're not happy with this. Um, you know, or do you think that it, it was actually easier for critics to kind of dismiss them because they're young people and everyone seems to ignore young people nowadays? <laughs> yeah, I don't, well, I don't know. I think um, I think they've had a big impact. Um, I think uh, sort of socially... Um, the message I'm trying to get people to understand, and I think a lot of other people in Extinction Rebellion are keen to 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 let people know that this is that this is uh, many of us feel like this about the about the youth strikes that like it's the most damning um, reflection of like the failure of adults and the failure of our society that children have to have to. Uh, withdraw their labor from the education system i mean it's like you know it's a real i think it's a real um powerful sign you know that the, the, this this failure is so monumentally um you know catastrophic that that children have to do that so i think i think there's a real strength to that and and the thing that made me 
sort of clearer on why it's so exciting that children strike school was, um, I don't know if you know, a researcher called um, Erica Chenoweth. She's um American academic. She's done a lot of research into like nonviolent movement and what makes social movements successful. Um, and her her work on in that space has been has been really uh, extremely influential on on our work and on lots of other people's work as well. Um, she I met her at the end of this lecture that she gave the other week, and she said, "Look, you know, there's there's an upsurge in women um, in politics in America, and it's not." And my research shows that it's not necessarily what people think, which is that it's come from the from the women's marches and it's come from like a backfire from, you know, them having a, a misogynist president. Um, it's actually, she says, actually, I think more about the children that walked out of school over mass shooting, because when the kids walked out and it didn't get like massive press, but it did cause massive disruption. And, the, and there were kids like in, there were kids, she said, like six and eight year olds who walked out of school. It wasn't just teenagers. And she was like, when when those children walk out, they disrupt almost everybody's life as an adult that they've got access to because the police have to become involved. Their parents are called home from work and can't do their job, and their teachers can't do their job either because they've just walked out of the classroom. So though that form of direct action by those kids, she thinks, has had this like massive, massive effect on American politics total. Um, and that's and that's super interesting when you get a new when you get a new sort of analytical perspective on on what these things can do. And so I was very excited when I heard some uh, youth saying the other day that you know if if we're still if we're still battling this in September and we feel that there's not been enough progress and the youth strikes should uh, go more than just Fridays. Um, and so I think there's some people talking at the moment about whether or not they might just not go back after the summer holidays. <laughs> which, um, yeah, which sure would be um, an interesting escalation on that front. But yeah, I think I think the youth strikes are, are super important and you can't you can't argue with a child who says like I want to be able to like eat food and live and breathe the air and drink the water when I'm your age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it was what I, I always felt like all the arguments against it were so useless of, oh, they're missing a day of school. Yes, so that they can live in 20 years' time. It's, I think, you know, I think I think uh, it's quite clear what their priority should be, um, especially when the school doesn't have enough pencils for them. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it, you know, to, one of the things is I, I find that young people are generally, uh, especially kids, they they really are so climate change aware. Um, and I mean, they're they're brilliant on so many levels. I, I do a, a work with a lot of kids in a show called Comedy Club for Kids, where you stand up for them, and the audience are always far more kind of woke than any of the comedians on stage. They're yeah. amazing. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, are we? Because part of me feels like, well, if if once we their generation's in charge, then things will be okay because they'll sort it out. But is that? A very naive thing to think because it's going to be too late by then. Yeah, I think oh, it's a very bleak question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is going to be too late to be honest. Like, I mean, things have to change now. They're really, they're really at that point where they, where they, ha we have to start to change stuff. You know, it's if you, if you're, and if you're only interested in in the in the climate thing, then you know, there's there's zero time left to start to make changes and, and carbon emissions are set to go up again this year. So they're not coming down. They're not even 
flatlining globally they're still going up and you know they've been going up for 30 years um since we knew for absolute certain that they should come down i mean we've actually known about this problem for a great deal longer than that but something impactful has to happen very very soon uh, on that front and then there's and then there's also the the extinction crisis which uh you know of course it's related to climate change but we sort of often reference it as as a as a as another factor that sort of intersects with climate change um and we don't it doesn't look like we can survive um a mass extinction event you know based on the geological record usually these things wipe out uh over 97 percent of all of life on the planet or something like that you know the, the majority of everything that's alive gets killed and we're and we're in that event now um it's 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 rolling on like really really fast so we we have to do some very very urgent things to to try and uh to try and fix that we have lots of knowledge we have lots of uh technology we have lots of possibility um we just don't have any uh political will so i think it's i think it's cool that the kids are doing it now because i don't it's not okay to leave it until until these teenagers are a bit older because uh well firstly that's like morally bankrupt but secondly (laughs) uh, (laughs) but but secondly it might be too late um so yeah so we're, we're really like calling for everyone to do what they can now uh, now, now, now. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. You're entirely right. It's hugely morally bankrupt. I just uh, have a lot more faith in the kids than I do in, in various <laughs> other generations at the moment, which is, is so depressing. Um, but it, it, like as you said, there's no political will. I mean, it, it really feels like, especially not from from the UK government. Are you? Are, are there any new ideas or policies? Um, you know, anywhere in the world that are having potential to kind of work in combating kind of carbon emissions or the you know the mass extinction are there any governments taking it seriously enough yet have we got any any glimmer of hope basically that's what i'm asking for (laughs) well do you know what i don't actually know which countries these are but i've i've been talking to um one of our uh rebels fahana yamin she's a, a climate change um lawyer she's been negotiating on behalf of vulnerable island states for a long time um she's been to all the cop meetings for example um she uh told us recently that there are quite a few uh countries mostly uh in the majority world in the um many in the global south who have got um carbon neutral targets of 2025 and are on track to meet them um this isn't my specialist area so i can't unfortunately i can't tell you which ones they are but um i i will i will be looking into it once we've just done this next round of rebellion because um the internationalist uh solidarity team are are expanding uh, extinction rebellion and um and and i i want to know a lot more about their work and about what's going on um but yeah, it's, it's interesting to know that like when we put forward a, a message and say net zero 2025, which everyone says, oh, you can't do that, it's impossible. And also, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's unrealistic that there are loads of places in the world who are on track to, to meet that. Now, admittedly, those places, I'm sure, have like average lower carbon footprint per capita in their country. Um, but it's just that put in context what we're saying 
is what we should t- aim for is like basically not not crazily radical at all it's um you know other other people are on track to do that and so there are there are voices that you can find around the world where where people are saying you know we will we are refusing to uh go extinct for example this is the message that we hear from the maldives and we will fight climate change with natural uh means you know we'll reinforce our shores naturally um we'll do everything that we that we can to protect ourselves um using nature to to help to protect us to to rewild spaces to to use mangroves all of this other stuff so yeah there are some there are some very inspiring and um uh and, and positive messages um around the world i think that i think the for me the the problem is is knowing that like the the massive amount of damage that is done by by developed countries and the reticence that there is to acknowledge um to acknowledge our part in it and to really do that thing which you know people have been trying to people have been trying to to get this through in climate negotiations for years that like polluting highly polluting countries that are very wealthy should uh pay they should make more effort and they should make faster reduction and they should support other people in 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 uh poorer parts of the world to make the transition that they need to make um as i heard somebody recently say that one don't quote me on this but one in six or one in nine carbon uh atoms in our atmosphere um you could track back to the uk um and that was his estimation based on you know where con- where companies have been set up and you know as this sort of uh, as the fossil fuel um industry and the industrial revolution has sort of been born out out of the uk originally and how that's like been spread around the world now i don't know whether that's got any sort of like factual accuracy but i think it's it's a useful it's a useful thing to try and get some perspective on you know who's put us in this position um and who should be and who should be like taking action to try and radically turn things around well privileged rich people should be should be putting their back into it shouldn't they life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we'll be back with Claire in a minute, but first... Julian Assange, Julian Assange. It's such a shame he's a total bellend, because it'd be really nice to finally rhyme something with orange for poetry or rap reasons. I mean, sure, it's not a good rhyme with orange, orange, Assange, orange. You know, in the same way that just calling Julian Assange a bellend doesn't quite explain all the ways that he is one and the one way that he isn't that's still overridden by the many ways that he is. You see, much in the same way that WikiLeaks supposedly sheds light on secret information withheld by governments, but actually mainly just sort of supported Trump and has loads of dodgy Russian intelligence connections, so too the recent arrest of Assange has shown people to be passionate supporters or haters of the man, while in reality it mainly highlights that no one bothers to understand that it's entirely possible to think more than one thing about one person. I mean, Assange did do one good thing, and that good thing is that in 2010, WikiLeaks published a video of a US military helicopter killing 18 civilians in Iraq, as well as a number of documents from Chelsea Manning revealing how the US had killed hundreds of innocent people in Afghanistan and 66,000 civilians during the Iraq war. And that's genocide right there. You can't just kill 66,000 innocent people and claim, oops, bit of an intelligence error. That is straight up horrific mass genocide war crime, and it was great that WikiLeaks published that evidence. Not much has happened with the evidence since then, and the US were pretty pissed off that someone showed them up to be bad guys, because you have to remember they're actually the good guys. They're just good guys with guns, you know, who kill bad guys without any guns. The same often applies to American police, ofs. At the time, the US and then President Obama vowed to prosecute Assange, but that was a bit tricky on account of him not being a US citizen, not living in the US, and it not actually being a crime to disclose classified government documents unless you can prove it was done with an awareness it could harm national security, which would have been tough considering it didn't, and the US has continued to kill lots of people abroad and at home anyway. It was an explicit part of Chelsea Manning's trial that prosecuting Assange would endanger press freedoms, which would make America both genocidal and authoritarian, and it'd be pretty tricky getting away with the first part if the second part popped up. I mean, someone should really, really let Trump know. In 2013, the Obama Department of Justice said it was indistinguishable from how The Guardian or The New York Times published classified documents via their sources so they couldn't prosecute him. With the main difference being, of course, WikiLeaks doesn't have a paywall, but hey, I'm not being picky. But publishing the documents is not what the US are charging Assange with now. They're charging old anemic jewels of trying to retrieve the documents by assisting Manning in cracking a password and using a username other than Manning's on a US Department of Defence computer in order to disguise Chelsea's identity. Now this is where it gets all a bit murky Mercatron because that turns Assange from being a publisher or a journalist into a hacker and illegal retriever of files. Yes, journalists are permitted and ethically required to protect the anonymity of their sources, but if they do hack the Pentagon for a story, it's kind of understandable they should know that there are consequences. I mean, has Assange not seen any films ever? I mean, Enemy of the State, that's a pretty... Uh, pretty big for it. Will Smith and anyway thing is the DOJ under Obama did try to get Assange on that as well but they couldn't because they were part of the charges against Manning and this charge was only renewed under the Trump government when CIA director and now Secretary of State Mike Pompeo a man that is almost entirely neck launched a campaign against Assange where he said and this is an actual quote that we cannot allow Assange and his colleagues the latitude to use free speech values against us cool that's totally a normal thing for anyone to say of course it is no new evidence has been found on Assange's supposed hacking of US security services since 2011, and so if he was to be extradited to the US, it does indeed raise questions about the freedom of press, Trump's treatment of journalists, and the power of the US to indict someone who's not a citizen or resident of the country. Basically, it's some scary, scary shit that no doubt in years to come some plucky new website will leak and show how batshit it all was. 
But, but, but this is why it doesn't make Assange, a man who's a weird cosplay of the Mandarin from Iron Man 3, a hero of the people. I mean, for a start, he mainly sought refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy to hide from extradition to Sweden from sexual assault charges brought by two women who said he'd molested them during a trip to Stockholm. Now, Assange said they were both American agents in disguise, but in a post-Me Too era, it mainly sounds like he was victim-blaming to get let off the hook. Oh, nice alibi there, Assange. Just so happens that you're being chased by America, so that'll be really handy and everything else. Especially as on the post-Me Too era, Assange then compared those men in Hollywood and elsewhere accused of rape as being the same as the black men lynched in Southern America accused of sexual misconduct against white women. Sure, because people like Harvey Weinstein were part of a totally oppressed minority, huh? I mean, just looking at Weinstein, it's obvious he was an oppressive majority all by himself. Sweden suspended their investigation into the allegations after five years of failing to get hold of Assange, what with him hiding in a room in London, but they may now reopen the case. What he's been arrested for in London is failing to surrender to the court. For the Swedish investigations, the charge of which held even when the Swedish one didn't, because British law takes no prisoners except for, you know, all the prisoners that it takes. Ironically enough, if Assange had just handed himself into Swedish authorities, the US would have had a much harder time extraditing him there because then they'd require authority from Sweden and the UK, whereas now it's just plucky plucky Sajid Javid who's very, very eager to please. Assange also has some really dodgy connections, from Farage visiting him in the embassy in 2017, where he apparently handed Julian a thumb drive, though neither will say what was on it, although I like to believe it's just pictures of Farage drinking wine that he never once released to the public. Or there's the fact that the filming of his arrest was made by a subsidiary of Russia Today, or how the Mueller investigation noted that WikiLeaks was an accomplice, perhaps unknowingly, to Russian cyber intelligence during the 2016 US election campaign in obtaining stolen Democratic correspondence files. Plus, while in the embassy, Assange tried to get the Ecuadorian security removed and have them replaced by Russian operators, although I have no idea if that's just a shit review for Ecuadorian security, I've no idea how good they are, or why they aren't just called Ecuador staff, which would make a lot more sense. Assange also has a very close connection with a man called Israel Shamir, who's mainly known for being a Holocaust denier, which is a weird thing for someone with that first name to be. I mean, that's literally how your name came about. No? Israel? No? Okay, sure. And yes, I know it's an ancient Hebrew name, but I'm guessing his parents called him after where he was conceived, you know, a bit like a more adventurous Brooklyn Beckham. Uh, It's also weird for a self-proclaimed journalist like Julian Assange, who runs an information service, to be pals with someone who denies a horrific event that definitely actually happened. It'd be like Captain America announcing he's pals with David Icke. I mean, in no way is Assange like Captain America, by the way. Um, Shamir once concerned WikiLeaks staffers by asking for access to material concerning the Jews, which was thankfully rejected. And add to that, Assange seemed like a really shitty guest at the embassy, literally smearing his faeces on the wall, skateboarding in the corridors and forgetting to wash for days, sounding very like someone he used to go to uni with. And he didn't even take care of his pet cat. I mean, yes, he sounds like a total dick, and of course if he looked after that cat, then that may stop Theresa May's government from extraditing him, because, you know, he has a pet cat. Labour have been criticised for saying the government should stop Assange being extradited to the US, and they're right, he shouldn't be, but Shadow Home Secretary and winner of Britain's most patronising voice every year since 1953, Diane Abbott, did say that he should be sent to Sweden and face charges for the sexual assault if they reopen them. So, in summary, Assange is an absolute bellend, but regardless of him being a bellend, the US shouldn't be able to persecute him for journalism, as that's a threat to free press and free speech, which the Trump administration seems to be working hard to get towards. However, Assange should be put on trial for sexual assault in Sweden, and also for being shitty to a cat. And also, I mean, smearing poo on walls. You idiot, they said you could decorate your room. I'm surprised he hasn't changed his website to Wiki Reeks or Shitty Leaks or Wiffy Lit. Yeah, you see what I'm doing. And now, back to Claire. 
one of the things that um you know cause I, I was reading uh, George Monbiot um was recently writing about uh, natural climate action and um the idea of ecological restoration um as an effective way to tackle carbon emissions um is that a, a very viable area to focus on because for me you know one of the things that seems to be an overlooked you know we've got a government in the uk that's not tackling climate change effectively but they're conservatives and conservatives also sort of allied with countryside alliance and people that seem to love the country and so is that a good angle to kind of take of just hey why don't we rewild and regrow in our own you know do you think that that that's kind of um got a chance of appealing to people um yeah i think increasingly people are able to have these conversations about you know um whether or not a carbon capture storage plant is actually a tree um whether or um (laughs) whether or not like forests and wild spaces are like a massive part of the puzzle uh i think those i think those sort of arguments are becoming uh, more mainstream and I think people are starting to understand that you know that nature is nature is can be our friend right like that's the the kind of um overwhelming capacity that it has to um to to replenish itself and to rebalance itself uh given given half a chance um I do think those those narratives are becoming sort of more mainstream and more more acceptable discourse in this space. I don't know I don't know how uh how quickly you can push um that kind of stuff through. That's the thing that I'm not certain about in terms of sort of policy. I mean, I know the Michael Gove's own estimate um last year or the year before was that the UK could be 30 or 40 years away from total soil infertility. And that, you know, that is terrifying because if you think that we've sort of like poisoned the air and we're poisoning the water and the temperature has changed and crops can't handle it. If you've also, if you've also annihilated all of the life in the topsoil, um, by, you know, overuse of chemicals, um, then you also can't grow, obviously grow anything. Um, and that seems to me to be like a very serious uh, crisis that looms ahead if, we, if we've got these, these great uh, problems with soil quality. And that's, you know, that's not just here, that's, that's all over the world. We've, we've got soil degradation issues. Um, so I would hope, yeah, that all of those, all of those, um, all of those factors and the, and the, and the logic of, of, uh, of nature uh replenishing things and, and us understanding that that's that that's a that that's a useful part of this puzzle of how we how we make a nicer how we make a nicer world in the process of of addressing all of these terrible problems um yeah i think hopefully that's that's coming to the fore but how i'm in a bit of a bubble probably because i'm the kind of people that i work with and the and the things that i read you know i don't know if I don't know if the general public are on board with rewilding yet, if it's quite mainstreamed. But um, but yeah, I do feel that it's that it's rising up the um, environmental agenda, which is which is cool. More people need to write about it and talk about it. I think. Yeah, I I, I don't understand why people aren't on board. I'd love to have more wolves around the place. I think it would really. I think it would sort out society as well. To be honest, um, just generally <laughs> having roaming around London, I'd be all up for that. And. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> more ma- more wild animals everywhere and uh i think we, that would be a brilliant way um but god that soil is soil um 
infertility is, is absolutely terrifying uh, to find out. I mean, what uh, what I should ask you about, obviously, is is um, you've got a, the international rebellion starting next. Well, when we speak, th- when this goes out, uh, it will be on the day of this goes out. So it starts on uh, April the fifteenth. Um, what is the international rebellion? How do people get involved in it? Um, can you tell us anything about what might be happening? Yeah. So, uh, as, well, I think as of uh, this week, we just had some press go out. Um, so, as you, as with uh, most of our work, most of this is organised above ground, um, which means it's very like open organising. We put out press releases before we go and blockade stuff, saying we are going to go and blockade stuff. Um, so there will be, um, hopefully, um, four or five places where people are going to go and uh, occupy um, roads. That will be um, Parliament Square, Marble Arch, um, Oxford Circus and um, Waterloo Bridge. And then I think, um, but check the internet for this, where they've actually ended up, the unruly youth um, might be going to um, Piccadilly Circus, which is in the centre. So if you look at those four locations, they sort of, they make, there's sort of four corners and, and in the centre is um, is, is Eros. And so the, the youth are there as like the heart of the movement, which is which is quite a sort of beautiful way to, way to show um, the layout of what's going on. Um, and the places where people go will have something of a theme to them. So you, we've got three demands um, and uh, three of the locations are aligned with that. So tell the truth is um, going to be uh, Oxford Circus because that's close to the BBC and we want the BBC to tell the truth as well as the government um, on this um on the on the seriousness of this issue um and then um act now uh zero carbon 2025 we've 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 taken a sort of act now approach to uh waterloo bridge and um parliament square people will be holding people's assemblies um so that's focused on the third demand which is for a citizens assembly um and the marble arch space will be sort of focused on the alarm on the you know the fact that this is this is a total emergency um so yeah so that's what's going to happen and who knows by the time this goes out whether those four locations will still have people in them or not (laughs) remains to be seen um you know depends on the numbers depends on the police response um depends on a lot of things but uh it should be really interesting and we've started to get some quite nice um, celebrity support this week as well. So hopefully that helps spread the message, you know, Emma Thompson and Simon Pegg and people making videos and tweets and all kinds of, and offering to come down. And so there will be some exciting um, appearances (laughs) throughout the week, I think, as well from certain people. Um, Again, I can't say when or where, but if you come down, um, there'll be music and speaking and, you know, interesting people. Um, yeah. That sounds brilliant. And, and is it, I mean, it's an international rebellion. Is, uh, are there things going on in other countries as well? Yeah, so we, uh, we've we been promoting this date um, since uh, last year. So that we, with the aim to like get as many people on board as possible so that we can collaborate internationally. Um, I know that there are things going on in, in many, many other countries. I don't know actually precisely 
what lots of them will be doing. I think some of them will look like more like a one day thing than 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 what we've got uh, planned in London, which is a which is an ongoing series of occupations. Um, but yeah, if you if you have a look on online, you can find all the other groups. There's, there'll be things um, I'm certain. There's things happening in um, America. We've got group in uh, several groups have started small groups in India. Um, there will be people. I don't know. We were going to try and live link them in and get them on a projection. Um, and I suspect we might have an internet connection problem. So perhaps these things are going to be pre-recorded. But I know that we've um, we've got some friends in Ghana. Um, and, uh, and and other places which we where we're, we're trying to sort of get those get those voices and those faces like seen and heard by the people on the ground um, next week. So hopefully that's coming together with the international team as well. Um, yeah, I'm hoping we can sort of do some do some linking up uh, globally next week. It's um, it's exciting. It's really exciting, and and I think yeah, if, if listeners want to check out obviously Extinction Rebellion's website, then um, I, there's there's loads of stuff happening sort of local to people. I, I was very impressed today that I got an email about in in london you're gonna have specific borough teams rather than london team which makes life a lot easier for, for people like <laughs> me who's a parent um but yeah also uh, and, and i'm sure that's the same with cities everywhere so so do check that out um and and last question claire thanks so much for speaking with me today it's been uh fantastic talking to you if you know terrifying uh as always <laughs> this subject always just makes me then spend the rest of the day going oh god what do we do um but uh, apart from uh yourself and extinction rebellion who would you recommend that people should be reading following looking up for info about tackling climate change and climate actions um obviously you mentioned uh was it jenny uh jenny bendel you mentioned earlier um jem j-e-m oh j-e-m right uh jem jem bendel um yeah i i think his work is extremely interesting um we've also there's an australian academic uh, well i think she's an academic um uh psychologist i think um jane morton <clears throat> I would look up her work. Um, she's got um, work on called "Don't Don't Mention the Emergency." That's her like presentation of the rationale for why we actually should talk about this uh, as an emergency, um, which lots of people have you know uh, avoided doing on the on the basis that you know if you frighten people they won't do anything, so therefore you have to tell them that it's not as bad as it really is, otherwise they won't do anything. Uh, obviously, we're sort of we're sort of working on um, on on not doing that because it doesn't seem to have worked. Um, her work on on that front is extremely interesting, um, and I think she's just made a there's a sort of online PDF as well as as well as a lecture that you can look up um, from her. Um, who else? Uh, if you're um, if you're an artist or an arts practitioner, I'd really recommend to look up a, a totally interesting conversation by bruno latour and um and uh sheldon huber who is a, a theoretical physicist by training but he's um one of the people who founded the potsdam institute and he advises angela merkel and um the pope on climate stuff and he's one of the scientists who really broke he really sort of like broke convention last year and 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 said, look, you know, we've got an intellectual problem here because we're not talking, we're not looking at this as a risk assessment thing. We're looking, we're still looking at this from a scientific perspective. And that's a problem because, as I mentioned earlier, science works with 
statistical analysis and data analysis. So if you if you know something's possible but you don't have any data on it, then science isn't able to to work with that in such a useful way. You know, like you wouldn't ensure this path that we're on. You wouldn't a risk assessment professional wouldn't say it's okay to do what we've done. So um so he's a very interesting person and you can look him up. He he wrote the foreword for a paper um which was written by a, an Australian scientist called uh, Spratt. I think his name's David Spratt. David Spratt is also an interesting um, person to look at. Um, and I, I'm very, I'm very keen on um, Kevin Anderson as well. He's a, he's a, he's a climate scientist um, who uh, Manchester um, guy. He's um, uh, Tyndall Centre in Manchester, and his his lectures are very interesting. You can find them on YouTube. And again, he's quite an unconventional scientist because he dares to say, you know, this is this is because of rich people that we're in this situation. And <laughs> hardly anybody in the scientific community ever like puts their head above the parapet and says stuff like that. Um, he certainly doesn't. He doesn't mince his words. Um, and um, and I think it's quite refreshing to hear somebody with like in-depth knowledge of the science who who's also willing to like make social and political comment um he's also a scientist who's got way more credibility than than lots of people um in the eyes of many because he doesn't fly so he goes to climate change conferences on train and says you all flew here you're part of the problem um because and, and that's cool you know like people who are willing to willing to put themselves in that position i think it's uh yeah it's super cool so he's he's great um yeah, hopefully that's 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 a good list. <laughs> Thank you to Claire for that. You can find Extinction Rebellion online at rebellion.earth or on Twitter at ExtinctionR or on all the other socials too. Their International Rebellion started uh, on Monday today as I'm recording this, but sign up and look on their site and you can find out how to get involved over the week and beyond. As always, if you've got peeps you want me to do talkings with to find out how depressing everything really is, then please tell me who that be, and you can do that telling about who being at Part Bolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can send details to me by sneaking into the embassy of your choice, asking to use the loo, but then setting up a home in the cubicles and leaking your interviewee's suggestions name to me, pretending you're an international anonymous organisation, but you get removed by very angry Guyana officials before you can hit send despite being mid-poo so I never ever see it. As always it's much much easier to email. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you again for lending your ears only to gain them back with 1000% extra interest like Wonga but if it was not alone but a podcast and not shit and not Wonga and actually just this show. Please do give this show a review on any of the pod apps you use from Pod Can See Everything, uh, Pod Gilbert, Slipsh Pod, Axel Pod or Atlantic Pod. I bet most of those actually exist don't they I bet they do um, and if you can afford to please donate to the Kofi or Patreon accounts and buy me a beer or injection of caffeine into my eyes to show your appreciation most importantly go out there tell others to tune in not least because you can't tune in you have to download or stream and as they spend hours on their old wireless trying to find which frequency this weekly shouting happens on you can chuckle loudly feeling like finally you've won something over someone Dank is shown to Acast for caring for this noisiness in its audio kindergarten, Mein Bruder the Last Skeptic for Decrank and Clanger, and to Cat Day for Tippenzee Linarian Note and Ein. This will be back next week when it's discovered that saying Anna Ziata re-smog three times into a mirror just makes your reflection look like it might feast on puppies to survive. Bye!
This week's show is brought to you by Early Halloween 2019 Brexit Costumes, making sure you can get to your parties in October dressed as your favourite political horror. New costumes include Marc Francois cry-wanking while misquoting Proust, Theresa May superglued to the door of number 10, and Boris Johnson. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.